In a couple of minutes, you will see the best footage ever taken from a northern French beach. It explains exactly what is going on, how the criminal gangs operate. Look at it and ask yourself, is it time we stopped blaming the French and started pointing the finger back at ourselves? We'll talk about the inflation figures, much worse than inspected. How bad could this get? And joining me on Talking Pints, the former executive editor of the News of the World and lifelong newspaper man, Neil Wallace. For the last two years, I've been going out repeatedly into the English Channel, walking along Kent beaches, trying to alert everybody to a problem. Illegal crossings of a channel that I believe would get out of control. Well, they are now out of control. But what no one, up until now, in my view, has done properly, is to really understand what is happening on those French beaches. And we've had an intrepid team of GB News reporters camped out in the sand dunes between Calais and Dunkirk. They have produced the most astonishing footage of what is going on there today. And I think perhaps some explanations that might make us start pointing the finger, not at the French, but at ourselves. Tell me, after you've watched this video, after you've watched this presentation put together by our Home Affairs and Security Editor, Mark White, tell me what you think. Farage at GBNews.UK. Here goes. Pushing off from the northwest coast of France, the latest group of Channel migrants attempting to cross into UK waters. Our drone footage perfectly illustrates how every inch of space on this small boat is taken up with its human cargo. We counted 50 people clambering on board this inflatable some struggling to get to the boat as it picks up speed. Look, 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 he's running, he's running, he's running back. We're at Graveline between Calais and Dunkirk, one of the people smugglers' favoured locations for attempting the crossing. Over days of filming, we witnessed the cat and mouse tactics of the police and migrants. From what we saw, French authorities are trying to stop the crossings using beach buggies to try to intercept groups as they emerge from the dunes. Firing tear gas to disperse the migrants. But in truth, despite some successes, there are far too many miles of coastline here for police to mount a fully effective presence. And although these groups are often chased back into the dunes, the people smugglers simply marshal them again. And when the police move down the beach to chase their next group, they make a dash for the sea. The local lifeguards have become used to multiple daily small boat launches. They're not officially allowed to intervene, but have helped when the boats get into difficulties. It's sad, you know, we see uh, children, we see uh, a man with his wife, and, uh, and uh, it's, uh, it's dangerous. So. The evidence of these migrants is everywhere around here. Discarded clothing littering the shoreline and the dunes along this tourist beach. The local tour guide says it's not just a UK and French issue, that the European Union has to do more. I went to swimming. And uh, I saw a boat, uh, a long boat, uh, with uh, I don't know how many people in there, and uh, we were a little, a little bit shocked. I was um, 
scared for them because uh, they were very, um, they were too much on the boat. As concerning as the small boat crisis undoubtedly is for those in the UK, particularly in Kent, for people living here along the northwest coast of France, the impact is huge. In this supermarket car park in Dunkirk, we found this group of Eritreans just sitting around drinking Jack Daniels and smoking cannabis in broad daylight, waiting here until their next attempt to get to the UK. Do you know anyone in the UK? In the UK. In the UK. In the UK. In the UK. I have UK for me. I have UK. You know people? I have no, no, UK no, no, no. for me. The people smuggling industry is big business for the criminal gangs, who can net millions of pounds a day. They've become expert at reading the prevailing tide and weather conditions. These life jackets are hardly even hidden among the dunes, waiting for the next group to grab them as they attempt to cross. And we discovered personal papers and other documents, discarded by the migrants on the instructions of the people smugglers, to make identifying them more difficult for UK authorities. Among the papers, application forms for asylum in countries including Belgium, Further down the beach, more evidence of the French police tactic of slashing and puncturing these inflatables if they can get to them in time. But although some of those initial attempts are frustrated, the vast majority of small boats and their human cargo make it across the English Channel. More than 20,500 so far this year. To add to the tens of thousands, who've already entered the UK asylum system. Mark White, GB News. Well, not only is that a brilliant piece of reporting with superb footage, but it's also a good explanation of what's going on on the other side. And it's objective. Look, I object vigorously to the hundreds of millions of pounds we've given to the French. But you begin to understand, having seen that footage, what can they do? There are hundreds of square miles of sand dunes, a 40 to 50 mile stretch of coast from which these illegal crossings can happen. Uh, there, unless literally, unless there were literally thousands of French troops along that beach or police, um, you simply couldn't stop this. And by the way, what's not being reported is the crossings over the Mediterranean are rapidly increasing in number over the course of the last few weeks. And you know what that means? It means a lot more will be coming to Calais and that northern French coast. My view is it's all too easy to blame the French. It's all too easy to blame other people. The problem is here in this country. Anybody illegally crossing gets a four-star hotel. They get a GP. They even get a dental appointment. They get 38 quid a week spending money, three square meals a day, and the opportunity to work in the illegal economy. And they know there is literally zero chance of anyone being deported. I think that film illustrates very, very clearly that however hard the French try, it's the pull factors in this country that will keep these people coming. Let me know, please, what you think. Farage at gbnews.uk. Mark White, our Home and Security Editor, joins us. Uh, Mark, you know, we've seen so much, haven't we? Um, we've been guilty here, too, of saying, blooming French, the more money we send them, the more migrants we get. But that does illustrate the problem, doesn't it? 
Yeah, the pull factors are here. And we speak to those that we see in Dunkirk and Calais and elsewhere along the northwest coast of France. And they tell us, we want to get to the UK. We love the UK. We know we'll be looked after the, in, in the UK. And they get that message back through from the people that have gone to the UK and they are well looked after in the UK asylum mm. system. That is a big pull for them. And we've seen with the documents that they've been yeah. discarding there on the beaches as well, on the instruction of the people smugglers to make it more difficult for UK authorities to get a handle on exactly who they are, whether they've been granted or declined asylum elsewhere. And there are forms there, French and Belgium asylum forms that people have clearly filled out. Whether they got accepted or not, we don't know. But they've clearly decided, regardless of that, they want to get to the UK. Yeah, and the numbers keep growing. We're roughly double the number this year we were last year. Nigel, there is some real concern. You mentioned the surge in those who've crossed over mm. uh, the Mediterranean into yeah. southern Europe, and they are making their way north. And many of those we know from past experience will make their, their way to the northwest corner of France. Already around Dunkirk and around Calais and to a lesser extent Boulogne, there are thousands of people in these makeshift camps around there. Now and again, they get cleared out by the French police. They're, they're not going anywhere. They're just disrupted uh, in that particular area. They move on, they set up another camp. So they will be joined those people that are already there yeah. by thousands more in the weeks ahead. So we can expect a summer surge without a doubt. We need change here, don't we? Well, that is something that has been called for for a long time. But I'm seeing nothing from either of the Conservative Party candidates that say mm. they are going to ad adopt anything that's widely or wildly different from the same policy that Boris Johnson and Priti Patel have pursued. They still want the Rwanda scheme, which is going nowhere fast. In fact, they want to extend that out to other willing countries. And they say they're still wedded to this plan for these larger de detention centres, even though they gave in to oh, the yeah. massive public yeah. outcry up in Linton on Ooze. Nothing's going to change in the short term. I don't think Mark White, thank you. But remember, if you want to follow what is really going on, you've got to come to the People's Channel GB News because we are going to keep doing this. Now, Mark mentioned their political reaction. And I, as I say, I feel ever more strongly that we should stop pointing the finger of blame elsewhere, other than, of course, the European Union's lunatic asylum policy of their own. They said it in 2015 when the boat started crossing the Med. I said to Mr Juncker in the European Parliament, if anyone that sets foot on the soil of an EU country is allowed to stay, and don't remember Mrs Merkel encouraging as many as possible, I said, you're storing up great, great problems for your future. And that was one of the reasons in Brexit I posed with that poster, which caused so much controversy of a huge tide of young men coming into the EU. Well, I didn't know then quite how right I was going to be. But I did think if we voted Brexit, I actually thought we'd get back control of our borders. And it doesn't look as though we have. James Sunderland, Member of Parliament for the Conservative Party for Bracknell, joins me. Ah, the point that's being made is that this government since 2019, since the numbers really began ticking up. This government, firstly Priti Patel repeatedly, and then the Prime Minister at Lyd four months ago, you've over-promised and under-delivered, haven't you? 
Well, the film's pretty impressive. I watched it earlier with you. Um, I think it shows many things. Firstly, the scale of the problem. Graveline, for example, is 20 miles from Calais. Think how many dunes and ports and boats there are in the middle. Um, but let's not uh, wax lyrical. This is a serious problem, and I suspect that we have underdelivered. Yeah, no, no, well, good. Thank you for a bit of frankness. That makes a very refreshing change these days in British politics. But when I look, and you're backing Liz Truss, I understand, yes. for the leadership. When Liz Truss is confronted on this, when Rishi Sunak is confronted on this, they say they support the Rwanda plan, they support the Linton on News style, yeah. uh, you, you know, centres. Um, the Royal Navy apparently are leaving the channel. Well, not that they were much good there anyway. Uh, it, it looks like nothing's going to change. Well, I think what's important is that for the last two and a half, three years of this government, we have set a framework whereby we can now make the changes that we need to do. Like. Nationality Subordinance Bill, for example, that set the framework for the asylum policy that we now need. But the important thing is we've got a plan. And the plan under both um, Prime Ministers-elect is the fact that we've got to continue with the Bill of Rights that we've been discussing before. We need to make sure that uh, we make it more difficult for these people to bring traffickers across. It's and all well and good, James. But the British Bill of Rights... All the while, we continue to be signed up to the ECHR yep. and ultimately that court in Strasbourg. That court will have superiority under an international treaty this country signed up to. It will have superiority over the British Bill of Rights. And, and actually, didn't the Brexit voting public think we were going to be freed of all of this? Yes, of course, and that is the plan. And what's really important... Is it? Yes, it is the plan. What's really important is that the Bill of Rights, when it comes in, will allow us to take back control. We also have a clear framework whereby we can extend that, enhance the legislation if we need to. We need to look at the Modern Slavery Act. We need to look at the Human Rights Act. And that's at the heart of yes. the problem. What we have to do is make sure that we make the changes in law to affect I mean, the, the Modern Slavery picture. Act. The Modern Slavery Act, you know, another one of the poison pills that the great Mrs yep. May has left for this country. We can deal with that. We can deal with that. And we are dealing with yeah, it. No, no, that can be dealt with through legislation in Parliament with a big Conservative majority. No problem. Yep. That can be done. The point I'm making is that we are signed up by international treaty to the ECHR and that has supremacy over anything your government says or does. Would you support us leaving ECHR? If necessary, yes, I would. What's really important here is... An well, how incremental much more necessary could it be than it is Well, now? what we need to do, first of all, is put the Bill of Rights in. That's incremental. What we need to do is to fix the bit of the Human Rights Act, Modern Slavery Act, that allows us to be beholden to the European Court of Human Rights. And ultimately, Liz has said, and I'm backing Liz, that if we need to, as a manifesto promise, we can then leave the European Court of Human Rights. It's just a bit like, isn't it, the Brexit debate? No, no, we want to stay members of the European Union. We're going to fight for reform, and reform doesn't happen. And in the end, we get Brexit. It costs two Conservative prime ministers. That, I mean, I enjoyed it, but it costs two Conservative prime ministers their position. What I'm saying to you is this. If the approach is we'll go down this route, yeah. and then if it fails, we'll address ECHR, You'll, be, you'll struggle. I mean, you, know, you might promise that at the next general election, but by then, the electoral damage that will have been done to you by this crisis almost guarantees that you'll lose. Well, nothing's black and white in politics. There's lots of grey in the middle. We're doing this incrementally. We're doing this appropriately. We're doing it legally. We're setting a framework now that allows the country to take back full control of our borders and to fulfil that promise, and that's what we're going to do. Well, I, I understand what you're saying, but I tell you what, the traffickers are not doing this incrementally. The traffickers are upping the speed with which people come. Yep. I understand your position. I get the logic of it. I just think the solution will come a little bit too late. Well, this is taking time. 
Rightly so, because after years and years of membership of the European Union, you can't just implement a divorce agreement. We are taking back control of our borders. And what's really important now is a strategic shock. What that basically means is we've got to put a shot across the bow now for the traffickers to the point where people coming to the UK illegally will face the full force of the asylum process. And those that are successful will stay and those that aren't will go. I believe it when I see it. All the while we're signing up. All the while we're signing up to EasyHR. I don't believe we will see it, but you've made your point very clearly. And thank you. Thank for coming on here with us at GB News. So, your reaction to that film you saw taken in the sand dunes of northern France. Annette in Manchester says, why not use a private company to work on both sides of a channel to stop boats leaving and or arriving? Put out a tender, see what's on offer. That's fine, Annette, but to police those French beaches Given the rewards and riches, if you cross the channel here, you'd probably need about 10,000 people. It just, it can't be done. This is about pull factors from here. Let's stop blaming the French. It doesn't work. Nigel, until we start putting them in locked detention camps the day they cross, this will continue. We need to stop giving them a hotel room. Would you pay £5,000 to end up in a detention camp, says Tony from Barrow in Furness. If the French were serious about stopping Channel crossings, they would allow them to be returned to French beaches. But I think that would stop the crossings immediately, says Leslie. Leslie, you know, that's one area where there is no cooperation from the French at all, and that, of course, is on returns. And I get that, and I understand that. I haven't turned pro-French on this. I'm just saying that literally without thousands of men and women lining those beaches 24-7. Even if you did that, some would still get through. they just start setting off from further west or indeed perhaps up in Belgium. Isn't the problem further back in the line? It's called open borders. The EU needs to get a grip. But please, don't make excuses for the French. They've been extremely lazy in the past. Chrissy, I don't doubt that for a moment, but I still insist that this is about pull factors here in the United Kingdom. Now, the inflation figures were out this morning. They were worse than forecast. We're at a 40-year high. It's projected to go higher still. And there's perhaps quite a big change in interest rates coming. I say big change. If you're on a variable mortgage, Liam Halligan, economics editor here at GB News, it could be a big change. Start with inflation. Worse than expected. Well, worse than expected by some analysts, Nigel, some. Um, so inflation was 9.4% during the year to June, uh, and it was 10.1% during the year to July. A 40-year high, as you said. The last time inflation was double digits, a singer called Madonna was just making her debut. Michael Jackson was bringing out Thriller, the best-selling album of all time. In other words, when I was a lad. So this is a serious cost of living crisis. To me, it's also, though, Nigel, a cost of lockdown crisis. Why have we got this high inflation? A lot of the Bank of England officials, the Treasury boffins who are meant to be keeping their eye on inflation, they blame the war in Ukraine. Oh, yes. But even before the war in Ukraine, back in January and February, inflation was already at a 30 year high in this country, despite the Bank of England saying for months and months yeah, it wasn't serious, is, it was going to be transitory. If you print lots and lots and lots and lots of money, in the end it has an effect. It's a cost of lockdown crisis because during lockdown we did, the Bank of England expanded its balance sheet, printed more money in a single year than it did in the previous 10 years, and a lot of that money's got into the system. Also, because if you shutter the world economy for two years, all those factories close down, all those systems mm. unravel, 
When demand surges back post-lockdown as it did, the world economy struggles to supply the goods and services that people are demanding. And that, for me, is the main reason why we have such no, high inflation. I think that cost of lockdown point is very strong, very powerful. We, we learned yesterday that wages in real terms falling quite sharply. Indeed, wages in real terms are going down by, they went down in three by 3%. Three That's the fastest fall in real wages on record because of, wages are going up because the labour market's tight, because you know, there's a shortage of workers in some sectors, but inflation's going up even more. And that 3% official fall in real wages mm. will be bigger still if we use the new inflation number. They exactly. must have known today's inflation number when they came out with yesterday's wages number. Yeah. And, you know, being an old city boy, a markets guy, I couldn't help looking <laughs> this morning at the projections. Yeah. The markets are telling us that interest rates will rise by a further 2% by next May. So we've had six successive interest rates, rate rises by the Bank of England when they finally you know, admitted that inflation was a problem, having denied it for a long time. We've gone all the way from a quarter of a percentage point all the way up to 1.75%. I say all the way. Mm. It's a big sort of proportionate increase, but it's still really, really low by historic standards. But you're completely right, of course. Um, the weight of money in the markets, uh, what traders are sh yeah. telling us, the prices that are showing on what we call the yield curves indicate to the best, you know, the, these are the real projections where people are putting their money, not what yeah. some academic in Whitehall says. Or, or somebody in the Bank of England saying yeah. inflation's not happening, no, that's or right. it might be transitory. <laughs> that's yeah. right. What the weight of money in the markets is showing, people betting, you know, live ammo, real yeah. cash yeah. In, in, in millions and millions of pounds, is that we're looking at interest rates going up from 1.75% where they are now, doubling to 3.5% by the middle of 2023. Yeah. Now, most people have got a mortgage these days. Uh, they fixed it. Uh, only about a quarter of mortgage holders, around 2 million per households, mm. are on variable rate mortgages. But the trouble with a lot of fixes is that they run out, right? And when you try and renew that fix, then that's when you get a real shock because yeah. you have to fix at a much higher rate, a higher monthly outgoing. Liam, thank you. Lots more pain to come. London has been hit with six murders in the space of the last four days, including Thomas O'Halloran, 87 years old, stabbed on Caton Road, Greenford. And this is just almost beyond belief. I mean, those of you watching on TV will see the picture of Thomas, and he was in a mobility scooter, and he was out collecting money, you know, collecting money for the victims of the war in Ukraine. And I have to say, I just think the whole thing is absolutely, truly, truly shocking and awful. And, you know, for you, those watching on television, there he is, um, you know, playing his accordion. I mean, what on earth could motivate anybody to put a knife in someone like that? I just don't know. And yet, Mayor Khan appears to have other priorities. Yes, as much of London as possible must become a maximum 20 miles per hour with speed cameras everywhere. The Euless zone is extending pretty much out to the M25, hitting the poor, the elderly, those who can't afford new cars. I would suggest the Mayor of London has his priorities completely and utterly wrong. Now, it is, of course, primary season in the United States of America. Donald Trump, as we mentioned last week, very much to the fore. Yesterday was a real grudge match. Liz Cheney, congresswoman from Wyoming state, had been the, probably the single most critical person of Donald Trump from within the Republican Party. Remember her father, Dick Cheney, 
who ran with Bush years ago as vice presidential candidate. And Trump, it's extraordinary, but 96% of the candidates that Trump has endorsed thus far in this campaign have won. He is completely and utterly in control of the Republican Party, or so it would seem. But I wonder, I wonder what turned people against Liz Cheney. I'm very pleased to say that I'm joined by Scott Melby, all the way from Wyoming, energy executive of the Uranium Energy Corps and a former Bush Cheney campaign staffer. Scott, welcome to the program. Nigel, it's great to be with you and uh, hello from Cheyenne, Wyoming. Just the most beautiful state in the United States of America. Uh, no question about that, but perhaps not for Liz Cheney today. And I see that I see that she got two thirds of the vote. So she, 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 sorry, got a third of the vote, you know, lost very, very heavily to Harriet Hagerman, who got two thirds of the vote. Scott, you, you know, you're a, a longstanding member of the Republican Party activist. You worked for her father. You know Liz Cheney. What is it, apart from Donald Trump's endorsement, but what is it that has turned yeah. you against Liz Cheney? Yeah, it's really quite incredible. Um, and, you know, I do think it, it clearly is a referendum on Donald Trump's America First policies. Um, but, you know, Liz Cheney is someone I've worked with on Capitol Hill as the head of the Uranium Producers of America, the trade uh, association uh, uh, here in the United States for the Uranium Producers. We've worked with Liz. She's been a solid conservative on so many uh, issues and, and values. But I think this singular focus and this obsession with Trump and January 6th um, has really um, caused her to take her eye off the ball. And uh, we've got a lot of issues uh, facing folks in Wyoming. Uh, the old saying is all politics are local. And uh, that was certainly the case last night in, in the uh, Wyoming primary. Um, we're, we're in a global energy crisis today. Uh, and Wyoming has uh, much of the things that the United States needs in terms of in terms of energy independence, oil, gas, coal, uranium. Um, we're uh, under attack by sort of the regulatory overreach from from the federal government. We need a congresswoman that's here fighting for Wyoming issues, not obsessed with trying to take down Donald Trump. And I think, uh, you know, uh, unfortunately, Liz, I've known her for a long time. She uh, chose to make this the hill she she was uh, chose to die on, and I think the voters delivered that uh, verdict yesterday. Yeah, and it's very interesting, Scott, to hear you talking about energy because this is beginning to become a bigger political issue right across the Western world. Um, but I mean, in terms of Trump's positioning, I get the dominance of his position within the party, the astonishing 96% of those that he's endorsed winning their primaries to run, to be senators, to be congressmen or women, to be governors of states. But I do wonder, looking at it from across this side of the pond, repeatedly talking about the failings of the electoral process as he sees it in the 2020 presidential election, isn't that potentially a mistake? Doesn't he need to start looking forwards? Yeah, I mean, I, I think there's a lot of Americans who um, look at the irregularities of, of the last election um, and are very concerned about it. I mean, if we lose, our, our, our vote is sacred uh, in any democracy. And so, understandably, people are concerned about that. But I think it, it goes beyond that. I mean, Americans are facing, you just uh, covered the inflation there in the UK. We're under the same pressures here. 
uh, price of food, gasoline, clothing, everything that the average person needs to buy, they're finding there's no money left at the, at the end. Of the, the paycheck's all gone before the, the month runs out. And so, uh, you know, yeah. they just remember how Trump's America First policies, we had low inflation, we had the border security, we had energy security. Um, you know, whether he was liked around the world or not, he was at least respected. And, and uh, our, uh, uh, the, the countries that uh, don't share our values uh, certainly didn't take chances in, in crossing Trump. So I think a lot of people look at where we were two years ago and saying, gosh, what happened uh, in, in two short years? We've lost uh, many of the things that we hold dear here as Americans. Very interesting, Scott Melby, all the way from Wyoming. Thank you very much indeed for joining us. And over the course of the next couple of days, I will talk a bit more about Trump and the perhaps legal difficulties that he may be in. Is Trump about to be indicted? We'll talk about that over the next few days. Now, some astonishing statistics put out today by a Conservative member of Parliament who clearly has some courage, because he's going to get shouted down. And it is a real what the Farage moment. It is about the pace and rate of demographic change within this country as a direct result of illegal and, of course, legal immigration. I was quite surprised by these figures. I wonder what you think. 35% of state school pupils in England aren't white British, up from 20% in 2007. And now the one that really shocked me. 20% of those in state schools don't have English as their first language. And that's perhaps why, as you drive through London, increasingly you see signs, road signs, not just in English, but in a whole series of other languages too. Is that the kind of country that you want to live in? one that is completely divided by language. It's not, I would suggest to you, a very good start, and it's government that is doing it to us. And to the viewer who asks whether I've been spending time with the Archbishop of Canterbury and I've turned into a Francophile, no, I haven't. I'm just trying to be objective on what our intrepid reporters found on those beaches in northern France. The point is, it's a vast area. They would need thousands of police night and day to stop the crossings. It's why they're crossing that I want to get to the bottom of. The problem is here. It's not actually in France. Now... It's my favourite time of the day. Absolutely. It's time for Talking Pints. I'm joined by Neil Wallace. Neil, great to see you. Cheers. Cheers. Enjoy All the it. very best. Now, you, you are a, you've been a, a veteran newspaper. Man, newspaper's been your work in life for you decades. <laughs> no, 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 no. Mature, I yeah, think, is the, is, is, is the term that we would yes. use. You've had a fascinating <laughs> career in newspapers. You're still involved, obviously, in media advice and, and, and things mm. like that. Now, you started the hard way, the traditional way that yeah. people used to start in newspapers, out there working for local newspapers, and I guess what's that sort of covering court stories and that sort of thing? Quite literally, when I started on the uh, Skegness Standard, before moving to the heights of the Worksop Guardian, well, there you are. <laughs> I, amongst the first jobs I ever did was standing outside a funeral taking the names as they went in and out of everybody attending. And the biggest mistake you ever made, and you never did it twice, is to leave someone's name out. Yeah. Oh, dear. Yeah. Of course, but local papers then really mattered, didn't they? Totally. 
totally. I live a lot of my time now in Cornwall, and the local papers down there are still very powerful. The Western Morning News and well, all the rest well, of it. Well, that's the big regional paper. Right. But papers like the West Britain, yeah. um, they are very strong, powerful newspapers still. And how they do it, you know what they do? They've got an identity. They know the Cornish identity. And that's the great thing with newspapers. You've got to know who you're talking to. And that applies... Just like you as a politician. Yeah, yeah. I mean, hopefully, uh, on a good day. Um, and I guess that's, that, that, that's the same whether it's online or in print, yeah? Yeah, I think that it's... Um, I think the move online has diluted the uh, personality of newspapers, per, uh, as did, incidentally, um, we may talk about it later, but the, the aftermath of the hacking scandal, yeah. Levisoning, all of that has damaged the character of newspapers. But I've got to tell you, what a life to mm. live, being mm. a national newspaper man in this well, country. Fantastic. Yeah, and you, and you spent some years going all over the world, all over the world conflict yeah. zones and, you know, finished up in hospital in, in, in Northern Ireland. And, That's true, yeah. Uh, and, I, mean, I got tear-gassed in, um, in uh, well, didn't really matter. It was, you know, big big riot going on. And then I made the mistake of stumbling around the corner. They'd set fire to um, one of the armoured trucks mm. and the burning leather on top of tear gas. It's not a good way to spend your no. day. No. You've got to be brave to be a journalist, haven't you? Uh, I think, I don't know whether brave's the right word, but you have to be committed. You have to believe in what you're doing. And, and there, it, it's a trade, not a profession, but it's a trade you've got to be absolutely devoted to. Mm. And uh, if you love it, then it's in you. And uh, my lady, Susan, would say, um, on my tomb will be the word journalist. Yeah, That's no, it. no, clearly. That's clearly. That what, did, needs. what did you make of our, our brave souls in northern France over the last couple I, of days? I said to Mark when he came out, it was terrific. It was terrific. It, you know, and, and, and that's what, unfortunately, newspaper uh, finances that have been so badly damaged by the internet, um, really crippled newspapers. But actually, the only way you get stories is go to the story. Yeah. You know, and yeah. I, I, I used to be called what was called a fireman. So uh, a phone call, uh, I was down the pub, actually. Um, well, that was, but in your days, I mean, Fleet Street, isn't that what people did? <laughs> yeah. I mean, quite a lot. <laughs> yeah. Uh, there's an earthquake in Italy. There's been a dam collapse. And I just dived in a cab. Somebody met me at the airport because you always had your passport with you. Yeah. Give you some money. Getting over there was a, a car waiting. I finally got there, rang in because it was before the days of mobile phones. Mm. And they said, yes, that's all good news. Incidentally, your wife rang in to say, when will you be home? Because the dinner party starts at eight. <laughs> yeah. We forget about a world without mobile phones. That is so true. And connectivity and... Yeah. Transformed everything, hasn't it? Yeah. And, and in some ways, not what, what is a problem is the not having the downtime, I think, is important. Because you need to think about it. I've got friends who are, particularly in the TV world, they spend, they stop being reporters, which they signed up for, and they just stand in front of a TV, of a camera, and they're broadcasting live, or they're on the internet, yeah. or they're on and it never, Twitter, and, and, it, and it, it never stops. stops. No, it ne no, you're absolutely right. Now, I'm fascinated, Neil, that you, as you sort of ascended through the ranks in journalism, you finished up working at the Sun newspaper in the days when the editor 
of the newspaper was Great a man, man was a man who sat in that seat, uh, Kelvin McKenzie, and did talking pints. And I, yeah. I put it to Kelvin. I said, you know, you really were a bit of a tyrant, weren't you, as editor? He said, yes, and I loved it. I mean, how difficult was he? He was a monster. I mean, he's a, he's a great friend of mine. But the thing with Kelvin was he was utterly committed. It, yeah. he, and he was committed to it and obsessed by it. And if you worked for him, you had to be as well, or you had to go. In fact, you couldn't survive, really, if you, if you didn't have his level of commitment. But he, he was just one of the two greatest tabloid news, three greatest tabloid newspaper men there has been. Yeah. And... Um, the worst thing that ever happened when you've got connectivity between a computer screen at home and the office. So even when he was off, and, and we actually got the techies to put something on in the system so it would come up and flash. So you knew that the damn man was sitting there reading the, uh, the, the news wires while he was supposed to be off, when he was supposed to be in bed. While so he, he, just, he just, just couldn't leave it alone? Couldn't leave it alone. Yeah, and was hugely successful. Hugely successful, yeah. And, and just a talent bomb. He, he, you know, he just thought headlines, ideas. And once upon a time, he, he'd been on my back. I was head of features, I think, at Sun at this stage. And um, I, he told me off for... Uh, I'll use that word. He told me Stop. I was sort of <laughs> yes. peppered with Anglo-Saxon. Because he didn't like the ideas or whatever. And um, I said to him in despair, Kelvin, I can't work any harder. And he looked at me and paused and he said, I don't want you to work hard. I want you to work better. Yeah. Collapse of stout. <laughs> yeah. Quite a good answer, actually. <laughs> yeah, wasn't it? You Annoyingly. Yourself, Neil, you yourself, you know, you edited the people and you went on ultimately to become executive editor of this incredible newspaper that had been around for 150 odd years yeah. the news of the world uh, you know one of the biggest selling newspapers in the world yeah. and one of the most powerful newspapers in the world I mean did you back then did you realize just how much power you had over people's lives yes yes to be honest about it, and I think that anybody would be a liar if they didn't say that. Not just on the news of the world, that was the... Actually, no, probably The Sun Under Kelvin was the most powerful uh, newspaper around. That and the Daily Mail, Dacre's Daily Mail. Yeah. Um, the news of the world, incredibly powerful, even when I was the editor of The People. And um, in those days, it was a Labour-supporting uh, yeah. paper. I loyally followed the party line. I um, criticised a cabinet minister in the uh, in the paper one Sunday. He was on the phone. His PA was on the phone the very next day to me at home. Would you have lunch with him on um, uh, on Tuesday, please? Uh, obviously, we'll be paying. Cabinet ministers were all over you. Yeah. And that's because of the power and the reach that the newspapers had. The sun at its height was selling four, yeah. over four million. Yeah. You know, the news of the world was selling over five million. Yeah. And this was at a time of course, when there was an explosion of popular culture. TV was exploding. Mm. Tabloid news. Celebrity paid. was growing. Celebrity yeah. was the yeah. biggest growth yeah. industry in the Western world. And but, we answered that but, call. But with that power does come responsibility. Yes. And the newspaper industry, through the hacking scandal, hey, I was hacked by News of the World, you know, but I was yeah. one of them, you know. Yeah. I wasn't very happy about it, I can tell you. Yeah. Um, um, you know, I promise to behave tonight, don't worry. Uh, but the newspaper industry, it was always known 
you know, around the world, the British press were, were among the toughest. Yeah. But, you know, that, there we are. People accepted that. I think people in public life accepted it was rough. But they didn't accept hacking. They didn't accept what no, they saw right. as cheating. Before we talk about the news of the world and you, be honest, how widespread was this across the industry? The news of the world finished up being closed down. Yeah. How widespread was it in the other papers, in your it, view? Well, it's been proven that it was uh, common on the Sunday Mirror mm. uh, as well. It was something to do with the personnel who interchanged between these newspapers. Uh, I don't believe it was um, on the Sun. For instance, there's loads of people have desperately tried to link it to the Sun. I don't believe that happened. You know, I, I, am, I carry no flag for the Sun or any other newspaper anymore. Particularly, I don't believe that most people newspapers did it. Do you know why? Because it was a damn stupid thing to do. Mm. And uh, I paid the price for it. Um, you did. I mean, you did. But I mean, others of your colleagues were found guilty. Yeah. Of and this. pleaded guilty. And pleaded guilty. Yeah. And, and Coulson, etc. you know, went to, went to prison yes. over it. Yeah. You, as deputy editor and then executive editor, you pleaded not guilty. Yes. And in fact, they came after you some years after, I think, didn't they? Well, Yes, yes, they did. Um, I left uh, newspapers when I was uh, in about 2009. And um, about two years later, they suddenly raided me in my house at yeah. uh, literally 6, 7 a.m. in the morning. Uh, by that time, I'd been long out of newspapers. I was a managing director of a, of a celebrity um, uh, reputation management firm, mm -hmm. um, and uh, they came after me. Yeah, you finish up at the Old Bailey, but you uh, unanimously, yeah, the jury say not guilty. Yeah, but you must have known about others at the News of the World that were doing this. I did afterwards, after the initial arrests. You know when, because how it worked was that um, they arrested two guys while we were still there and they uh, were busted and went to prison. And it was the classic of um, Pandora's box in the sense that you, you realized the sort of guys they were. And as this investigation continued and more stuff come out, you're sort of sitting there and thinking, how did this happen? Because it was, it was nuts. And you know, the danger of doing it was always self-evident. And the industry paid the price, the news well, of the world did. in particular. Yeah, the news of the but, world went. I mean, you were found not guilty, of course. As I repeat unanimously, but took a hell of a toll on you and your family and everybody, because it does, doesn't it? Well, it does. The worst thing for me was that they arrested me and then kept me on bail for four years. And, you know, it cost me my marriage. It cost me my, you know, a tremendous amount. But... You know, you're a survivor of these things, not a victim. And, I, you know, I had my moments of uh, justification, if you like, yeah. when um, I stood in that, in that dock at the Old Bailey um, where murderers, terrorists, paedophiles had stood and they had a member of the press standing there that had been hounding for four years. And those guys, they were asked by the judge, guilty or not guilty? Mm. And they said, not guilty. And I walked out of there four years later after yeah. it started, and Hell thank an you very much. We finished up, Neil, with Leveson. We finished up with the sort of different rules of engagement. Yes. Uh, we've talked already about the fundamental change to online and 
the fact papers have lost a bit of their character and personality. Do you think, post Leveson, we've got the relationship right now between public figures and the media? Uh, I don't really, because I think the um, it was a very healthy thing that politicians in particular, and anybody in power, in a position of power, looked over their shoulder nervously at, where, at what the press might be sniffing around them. I don't think they have that fear now. When uh, I was in national newspapers, a very regular thing would be the latest scandal coming yeah. from over there. Yeah. Whether it was a sex scandal, a money scandal, there are far fewer of them anymore. Well, I was in newspapers for a very long time. Yeah. They haven't changed their character, <laughs> trust me. It's all going on. But the problem is now they get away with it. Well, you've made that case very strongly. Final thought. Would you advise a young man or a young woman to go into newspapers and journalism today? They're 18, they're 21, whatever. Is it still a great thing to do? God, yes. What a fantastic career. What a fantastic career it is. Great. What an amazing thing to be able to go and ask questions. Follow your own curiosity. Turn over the stone, you know, and, and confront things and just explain things to ordinary people. Those people walking past down there yeah. and explaining to them, as you just did there with Mark White, yeah. as you guys were doing with that footage. You know, it's I great. say cheers to it. As it's a great privilege. Thank you for coming on Talking Pies, Neil. Cheers. Neil Good Wallace. Cornish beer. <laughs>